Okay, we'll see with the weather how many, the cold anyway, how many people make it. But um, we'll pray. Um, we'll go ahead and get started. And, um, well, I'll kind of introduce what, what we're going to look at tonight and then what we're going to maybe start into for um, next week. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for a place to meet. Thank you that you promised to always be with us whenever we gather together in your name. And we just ask that in all the activities this evening, um, the junior high, senior high youth groups, and the younger kids, all the teachers that are doing their best to teach Christ and set examples. I pray that you would bless them in their work tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, <clears throat> I, I really, I apologize about every other Wednesday night. Um, moving through, especially once you get up into the church history of the Reformation and post Reformation, which is where we are now, um, things just scatter. I mean, there are all kinds of new churches, new doctrines, new movements. Um, as I've mentioned a number of times, you're in a whole era of the world timeline where there's no such thing. It's not even heard of. It's not even thought of that there be separation between church and state. And so in addition to trying to track Protestants, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, then you, you have that scene changing all the time, flipping back and forth depending on what the ruler was or believed or what then the heir to the throne comes to the throne and he's switches religions so it it just seems to get more down in the weeds the later you get <clears throat> so that necessitates some um following through say to the 1600s with something and then going back on another issue a hundred years and it gets kind of wacky um so that's an introduction slash apology for um, tonight looking at something we never pay attention to. At least I shouldn't, I don't think any of us do. I don't. All the church history I've read, I don't pay much attention to the Eastern Church. Okay? Um, and it happens to fall, unfortunately, um, at a simultaneous with what's going on in Ukraine to study at the whole eastern wing of the church and its growth. And we're looking at a pretty big chunk of time from 1500, which puts us in the Protestant Catholic wars and the Reformation in Europe. Um, but there's a parallel here of what the Eastern Church 
is doing and its spread. So from 1500 to about 1750, that's a, that's a long time. That's, if you're really good at math, that's 250 years. Um, <clears throat> maybe a little bit of refresh, um, you know, um, refreshing our minds. Anybody, can anybody tell me what you know about the Eastern Church? We've talked about it a fair amount. A, a um, breach began to appear as early as the threes and the four hundreds. Um, it continued to widen between Rome and, well, what became Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. Um, it continued to widen, and there were a number of events that kind of helped progress that gap. The final, it's called all capitals in church history, the Great Schism, okay, occurred in 1054 when East and West went their separate ways and Constantinople became the, the Rome of Eastern Christianity and Rome, of course, remained Roman Catholic, okay? Um, so technically, there was no more Catholic Church. The word Catholic meaning universal and only. Now there's at least two um, streams of Christianity. Do you remember um, any of the differences between the Roman Church or what's called the Latin Church or what's called Western Christianity versus Eastern or what they called Orthodox. Now everybody knows what Orthodox means, right? It, they're making the claim, we're right. We're, we're the only ones that are carrying on true, the true Christian faith, okay? Um, but between East and West, anybody remembers some of the reasons for division and some of the doctrines that might have, um, that they differed on. If you don't, it'll, it'll mean everything I've done is in vain, yeah. Okay, veneration of saints was a bigger deal in the West than it was in the East. Um, any others? If you, if you have a run-of-the-mill calendar that you order, you know, for the new year, um, I can't remember. I think maybe tomorrow. No, maybe it was Monday. Anyway, this week, sometime, was Eastern Orthodox Lent. Okay, Roman Catholic was what, a week ago? Um, I can't, anybody know? In fact, I th I'm pretty sure one of the most devout Catholics on the earth, our president, um, was going around with, you know, looked like he hadn't taken a shower with the ashes cross on his forehead, okay? I think it was a week ago today. And I, the, the Orthodox don't have the same day. They also don't uh, celebrate Christmas on the same day. Christmas to them is January 6th. Um, they don't have the same saints either. Yeah, right. They don't have the same saints. Um, I'll get into a couple of 
ridiculous little doctrines that helped split up some of the Eastern Orthodox people yet tonight. But um, there were a couple more fairly serious doctrines um, that they differed on. Of course, the Eastern Church has always rejected celibacy of priests, and they've always rejected the authority of the Pope. Um, that was one of the main things. They've, they just flat weren't going to bow to Rome being the Pope being the representative of Christ on earth. Um, now, a doctrinal issue that um, grew up fairly early in the threes and the 400s was the doctrine of Christ, the efforts to try to come up with a Christological doctrine that accurately described the incarnation, um, how the three persons of the Trinity relate to one another. Um, and one of the places, well, there's two places where they got a little bit off, and these would be serious enough to cause division. The Western Church, which we're a part of, really, even though we're not any longer Catholics, we're Western Christianity, took the position the three persons of the Trinity are co-essential, meaning of the same essence, co-eternal, and co-equal, okay? And when it comes to the incarnation, that Jesus had two natures. It's called hypostatic union, okay? You don't have to memorize that to get to, get to heaven. Um, but that Jesus, that's why we say he was very God and very man, fully God, fully man. The Eastern Church emphasized the humanity of Christ a little bit to the expense of divinity, okay? Because they took, not an obscure verse, but Philippians says, where it says Jesus emptied himself, Philippians 2. He emptied himself, did not think being equal with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, became a, a man, and humbled himself to death, even the death on a cross, okay? Well, they take that phrase, he emptied himself, that he emptied himself of, I don't know if they know the percentage, but some amount of his deity, okay? The Western church, which is us, correctly says he did not give up or, or empty himself of any of his divinity or deity. But temporarily, the prerogatives and the, um, if you want to use the term, privileges of deity. He submitted himself to the Father. Um, whereas they, they're equal, the, the persons, okay? Um, that's, that's, a, that's not a good doctrine. I mean, that, that's something to fight over. Um, and the second one, it seems also kind of obscure, but it's also important. The Eastern Church took the position that the Holy Spirit, you know, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father 
And then he said of himself, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. So Jesus seems to make it very clear. The Holy Spirit, the word is proceeds. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Okay? The Eastern Church said the Holy Spirit proceeds only from the Father, not from the Son, which seems, again, to drop the Son down a notch. Okay? Um, and again, those may seem on the surface to be, what, what, what's the, you know, that's how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Those are serious issues because it has to do with uh, the, actually the, it works itself out into if we have a diminished son, then you can't help but diminish the atonement. <clears throat> you can't help but diminish then um, his, the efficacy of shedding his blood. And so you, a lot of doctrines can look like, that's no big deal, let's don't worry about it. But you trace it out, and the further out you go, the more clear it gets, hey, we're off. We were off a half a degree here, but now we're off 10 degrees. Further out you go, okay? So the, the Eastern Church had some kind of weird picky little stuff that seemed that way. Um, so anyway, um, we're in Western Church. Western Christianity, um, actually, though we've been totally dominant, I'm not sure this is, uh, I ought to look it up and find out. I don't know if Western Christianity is um, more n numerically stronger than Eastern. Um, Eastern has left less impact, I think, in the world. They're not much for missions, that we're gonna, uh, for missionarying, for evangelism. They kind of, um, and 1500 began a long, slow slide uh, in church history they refer to as just a period of stagnation. Um, they're... Um, they're big into icons too. You know what icons are. The pictures that are painted and they all, they, they have that peculiar halo painted, you know, around them. That's Eastern Orthodox. Um, and there's, I can't keep track of all of it, but you, you, it's one, it's an Eastern room in your house, bedroom, I don't know, um, kitchen, whichever, whichever is the eastern corner is where you have an icon of some saint. And if you're really devout, you go in, before, you know, before you do anything, you get in the house. I don't know if you can take your coat off or not, but you go and you kiss that icon and then you go about your day. Um, we had a really, really nice Greek family that lived across the street from us in uh, Indiana when I pastored there, dear people loved them, um, but they were they were strict Greek Orthodox. They drove all the way to Indianapolis and back. It was the closest Greek Orthodox they could find, and so that's where they went. <clears throat> and you would see, you would see him. He'd back, he'd back out of the driveway, and when he put it in drive, I don't know. <laughs> Um, maybe it wasn't didn't count that he'd started on his journey by backing out, but when he'd back out put it in drive, start down the street, and, you know, cross himself several times 
as he started out on his trip. Um, very devout, very nice, you know, people. Um, and there are clearly Eastern Orthodox that love God, know God. Um, so it's the, the laity, I guess you'd say, that are um, probably more, in many cases, closer to God. But at any rate, so the Eastern Church, because the Roman Empire and then following uh, the Romans, you have the Germanic tribes coming down and you have all West, the Western civilization has dominated for 2,000 years. Um, it is now falling apart, I think, um, because we've, we are erasing our own foundations, which is Christianity. Okay? Um, but at least at this point, we are still dominant, um, though the termites are working hard at the foundation. Meanwhile, then, while all the oxygen in the room and all in, in the textbooks and everything is all focused, it's, it's all gone because of the Reformation. That was world-shaking, Western world. But we're, we're in the Western world. I don't think about, I don't pay attention to Bulgaria. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know what in the world the history of whoever over there because they're not, they're not in the important half, okay? The Western half. So um, we tend to not pay much attention to it. <clears throat> but during the same time of Martin Luther and the upheaval that was going on in Western Europe, you have the Eastern Church is still doing things too. Um, so there were, here, here are what are called the, they don't have a pope, Eastern Church. They have what's called patriarchs. And the patriarchs are in generally in countries, okay? So they're, they're, they don't have a hierarchy that ends up with one guy up here. They have several by countries, okay? So you have Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox, um, and they have their own patriarchs, okay? Um, the patriarchs, in 1500s, um, Jerusalem, Antioch, which is in Syria, Alexandria, which is in Egypt, and Constantinople. Okay, those were the centers of cultural and national Eastern Church. Um, during the time of the 1500s, and I, I, I gotta kind of get through all this quicker. Remember last week and the week before we talked about the Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation. After Luther broke away and all the different um, Protestant groups per country broke away, then the, the Catholics woke up and said a lot of what the criticisms of corruption, all this, is valid. We've we got to clean up here. They didn't go far enough, but at least they had what's called the Counter-Reformation. -ref, uh, and during that time, kind of the, they came up with a new order monastery called the Jesuits. We've all heard of them, probably. They were the missionaries. And they really were evangelists to go out and try to present a different picture of 
Roman Catholicism, we've cleaned up our act, we've quit a lot of stuff that were wacky doctrines, and um, we're come back, come home. In fact, to this day, I know it's a bit different, but I saw, a, I saw an ad um, no more than three or four days ago um, put on by Catholic bishops or the Catholic Church in America, and it was come back, come home to wandering Catholics. Well, in their mind, everybody in the world that is not a Roman Catholic has wandered from the Catholic universal church, the true church. That includes every one of us. And so their hope and prayer and invitation is come back into the fold. Okay? Um, there was much of that aimed at the Eastern Church specifically. So a lot of missionaries from Italy and you know France and wherever the Catholic was big went east and did their best to try to persuade um, Orthodox churches come back into the fold. They're, they're, they, they set up a negotiating deal and um, this is a word, we never use it, um, uniates, <laughs> okay? Where in the world they came up with that, I don't know. It's U-N-I-A-T-E-S, okay? Or just T, singular. Those are churches that were maybe on the fence whether they were Eastern, they had a mixture of Eastern and Catholic, that the Catholics agreed in their invitation, come back into the fold. You can keep your language, your ecclesiastical and service language, not Latin. Catholic, you got it then, you got to be Latin. Well, maybe the Eastern Orthodox there, they've got Syrian, Syriac, okay? Well, okay, you can come back. You have to sign our statement of faith. You can keep, if your priests are married, they can stay married. So they gave up a lot of stuff. The only two things, you agree with the basic Apostles' Creed and the um, Athanasian Creed and Nicene Creed. And you swear allegiance to the Pope. Okay, If you'll do that, you can keep all the non-Catholic stuff and you're fine. Those churches then formed kind of a, you know, um, side group of Catholicism and took away some from the Eastern Church. So they suffered loss during the 1500s, um, probably mostly that century. Now, um, we don't we won't get much more into the um, this these quasi kind of half Catholics, um, but now just for a second we we go back 500 years. Okay, in 988, the Ukrainians who were called have you ever heard of White Russians and Little Russians and Great Russians? Um, anybody? The Great Russians are considered, uh, this is ancient, the Great Russians were considered the Moscow Russians, okay? The Little Russians 
that was a name they attached to Ukrainians, okay? Um, and then white Russians were generally, and it didn't have to do with skin color. I don't even know where the white came from. That's Belarus, or what became Belarus, which is today adhering to Russia and, and even helping in their attack on the Ukraine, okay? Um, but all of these churches there, all the Christianity in this whole region is all Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, or Russian Orthodox. Now, the Ukrainians ended up with their own church, Ukrainian Orthodox, okay? But the first uh, real push by Christians in missionary, missionary endeavors was into the Ukraine. And in uh, 988, the, I don't know what they called him, wasn't a czar yet, but the king of the area that's now Ukraine, converted, was baptized, and they had all kinds of mass baptisms then. And the um, Eastern Church was established in Ukraine with a um, head and headquarters in Kiev. Okay, so it's, it is interesting that, um, you know, the ancientness of that part of the world. Um, here you've got, you know, every day in the news, some news about Kiev. Are they going to try to surround Kiev? Are they going to take it tomorrow or whatever? That's an ancient, ancient city um, and cultural center. And it became then the Orthodox Christian center. And they had an archbishop and so forth there in the 900s. Now, <clears throat> um, fairly soon, Christianity then spread Eastern into Russia proper. Okay? It, after a while, and it's another, it's quite a while, it's three, four, five hundred years, four hundred years, the patriarch, the headquarters, shifted from Ukraine to Moscow, okay? Um, and then Moscow was made, Moscow was called the Third Rome, okay? They called it themselves. They, they were, they thought a lot of themselves. What do they mean by the Third Rome, okay? The first Rome, the real Rome, according to them, had God had discarded them because they had gone into such heresy that not only did Protestants leave later, but we consider them no longer with God. So, the first Rome became moved, in their thinking, to Constantinople, which is where Constantine, after his conversion, in the 300s, moved and established a new capital, not Rome. Well, they kind of had two. So, Constantinople then, in their minds, was the second Rome. It carried on what the first Rome squandered and didn't care about, and so God moved to Constantinople, and now that was the center of God's work in the whole globe. Okay? 
Well, Constantinople in the 1450s got overrun by the Muslims. Okay, you can't, We can't forget the Muslims and all that they did in all this. So they then lost. Constantinople didn't immediately stop as being a center of Christianity, but the only free Christian capital, if you want to call it, now for the Eastern, in their mind, was Moscow. So Moscow was now the third Rome. Moscow, Eastern Orthodox Church, and the patriarch there was the, the defenders of the faith. Okay? In God's eyes, they were the ones who had the truth, and it was their calling and their duty to maintain it. Okay? Now, Khrushchev, that's how old I am. Putin, Putin has talked about that, okay? There was an article probably a year ago in Christianity Today, which is a, you know, standard kind of a Christian periodical. Anyway, Putin has tried to um, kind of wrap himself in the Russian Orthodox church as a method of gathering together everybody that's Russian Orthodox, which includes Ukraine, okay? Now, he's not, he couldn't care less about God, but this is a way, because the Russian Orthodox has never been separate from the monarchy or the dictatorship or whatever else they ever had. There was the familiar tension between the Patriarch of Moscow and the Tsars or whoever, you know, um, because they were wed together. And they both propped each other up. They both worked together. You take during the years of Stalin. Stalin, I don't know how many people know Stalin, um, as a 20-something-year-old, was in a Russian Orthodox seminary preparing for the priesthood. And then he, I don't think he finished. Um, at least whatever he learned there didn't, it didn't stick. Um, yeah, Stalin was a seminary student. And so when he took over, yes, they uh, clamped down on the Russian Orthodox, but they never wanted to get rid of it because they were useful. And so they, the, the czars, or then when the communists took over, um, they have suppressed, but they've never gotten rid of the church because they, they can, at, when they need to, they can appeal to the um, community of Russian Orthodox, which is, goes to Belarus and um, Ukraine and a lot, Latvia and Estonia and all these people, they come back to Mother Russia, which the church and the government are the same. So here's stuff that's, you know, it was a thousand years ago that Ukraine converted, quote, um, and you're still, this is still alive, it's still part of what um, the mix is in all this. Now, um, 
Once, they, once Moscow became the center of Orthodox Christianity in, um, Eastern, in Russia, it really grew a lot. Um, the numbers increased. They, um, they spread um, widely through the 16th and even the um, 17th centuries. That's the 15s and the 16s. Um, in the meantime, so, so then let me just kind of, um, where did things go after the third Rome, Moscow, which technically remains today? Where did things finally kind of settle out in um, Europe? Now, I got to be honest with you. I looked at you know maps lately looked at um, let me ask you this and you're not going to be dumb because if you put a gun to my head I couldn't tell you the Balkan nations um, anybody know um, sorta where the Balkan countries are anybody even a guess. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now, yeah. What is it? We got Al Albania now. Yeah. And Bulgaria. Is, is what about Romania? Yeah. See, I, I. Uh, yeah. There's some really big river that I can't remember that you know comes out of Russia somewhere that's kind of an imaginary boundary. Um, but the Balkans, that really, this is how bad off I am. Probably I would have, in my mind, I'd have looked at a map and I thought, okay, here's Italy because it looks like a boot, so I know about that. And then you go there's some water, and then you're into Turkey. That's, <laughs> that's completely wrong, okay? Because I forgot Greece. Um, Greece is in there, um, but you have, you have the Black Sea, you've got uh, Istanbul, which is, does get into Turkey, but just the western edge. Um, but there's a whole bunch of those nations that are mentioned, um, Croatia, whatever, that I don't even... I couldn't pick them out on a map, saved my life. Um, then you have, um, you have the Baltics, okay? Those are, that's Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland. Um, somewhere in the middle, you got Switzerland, they're kind of off, off of Italy. Um, there's, Europe is, their countries are little um, compared to, I mean, they're not as big as Wyoming. I mean, you've, it's, when we were over there a couple summers ago, um, you know, it's an hour's train ride from Berlin, uh, clear over to the western edge where, to, to Luther, Wittenberg. And then it was another like hour and 20 minutes where Paris. Um, you know, it's, it's much smaller than we're used to. Um, at least the size of our 
we got counties that are bigger than their um, countries. Um, but, so uh, there's no way in the world that I'm going to be able to do a very good job of trying to um, show where things were by the time you get to the middle of the 18th century, the 1700s. Now, there have been a lot of wars in the sense. Some lands changed hands, and some names, that, you know, new countries named and new boundaries. But generally, by the time you get to the end of the 1600s, starting of the 17s, it's pretty settled and remains pretty settled what countries were Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and all the different kinds of Protestants, okay? Um, so if you look at kind of from the Mediterranean up, um, from Istanbul, which is towards, you know, the east end of the Mediterranean, from Istan Istanbul, that's Eastern Orthodox. Some around uh, Turkey, of course, is Muslim. So you've got these, you've got the Muslims, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Protestants, okay? The Eastern is going to be Palestine, Syria, Lebanon. Um, they are generally, Lebanon's got more Christians than Syrians now, but um, generally that, that was, is in the camp of the majority are going to be Eastern Orthodox, okay? Now, um, west, west of Turkey, you get over into Bosnia. Um, was, what was it? Bosnia-Herzegovina or Her Herzegovina, whatever. The, back in Clinton's days, they were having the Serbs, they were, they were tearing each other apart. And we were bombing somebody over there. I don't remember exactly who it was. Um, but that part of, that's dead square in the middle of the Balkans. Here's what you have there. And here's what was going on back in the 90s when they had the Serbian whatever conflict. You had the Muslim sweep that started in the 700s that went up through Palestine and wrapped around north of the Mediterranean stopped in the Balkans, okay? The Eastern Orthodox also was mingled in with what the Muslims overcame and conquered because originally that would have been Eastern Orthodox. So you have a mixed Eastern Orthodox Muslim on the, um, if you're looking at a map, it's the right side of the Mediterranean and Palestine, okay? Then you, you come from this side, from the eastern part, or the western part of Europe, and that's Roman Catholic, okay? In that ruckus, the Bosnia-Herzegovina, Serbian war, all three of those groups hated each other to death. Um, I think probably Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox probably hated each other as much as they all hated the Muslims. That was a lot then of what was going on there. So that's kind of a um, pressure point religiously. The further west you go, 
You have the southern part of Germany and Italy, France, Spain, Portugal, Roman Catholic. The northern part of Germany, of course, you've got Poland. Poland, too, to the east of Germany, hard-boiled Catholic. Okay? Um, you've got right next to it Belarus, which is Eastern Orthodox. Then you go a little bit north, Scandinavians, Lutheran, Protestant. Northern Germany, Lutheran. Um, you go over to, um, well, you have Switzerland, you have Holland, um, the Netherlands. The Netherlands used to be Reformed theology, um, Calvinist, Protestant. They're gone. Um, but Holland is going to have a, a bit more, but not much. England, of course, Protestant, um, Church of England, Scotland, Ireland Catholic, half Catholic, half Protestant, and they hate each other. And they're still, they, they aren't blowing each other, other up as bad as they were a decade or two ago, but they're, you know, they're not far from it, okay? Um, <clears throat> so, most of that that was in place in the 17, by the time you get to the 1700s, hasn't changed a lot. Some boundaries have, some names have, but the religions, um, whatever our majority, have stayed pretty much um, the same. Okay? Now, I don't know how well of an ending that is, but that at least, I think we, we don't need to mess with Eastern Orthodox anymore. Um, now we start looking at um, you have long, you had the Thirty Years' War, which was 1618 to 1648, that just tore up France, Germany, Holland, a um, bunch of those mid-European countries over Catholics trying to regain pro uh, land that had turned Protestant, vice versa. And th that, that led to a lot of refugees, a lot of people going to Holland, a lot of people going to England, um, and they were, that's what we talked about last week, the pietists, the people that were really good Christians. I mean, they felt like the church had already, even after the Reformation, the Reformation now, let's say, was 150 years old. 150 years is plenty of time to go liberal, you know, and kind of lose what the zeal that you had. Um, so you have a lot of uh, non-authorized groups. Um, every single one of these nations in all of Europe, they all had laws. They all had state churches, every last one of them. And every place that has a state church today, um, Germany is still Lutheran, Scandinavian countries, England, state church. By the way, um, the taxes that you pay, I mean, the whatever their version of the IRS, part of that goes to support the churches, fix the buildings, pay the priests and preachers' salaries, um, and because it's a state church. Okay? Um, so, you have a lot of people then who were 
at least in England and other places, it'd be very similar. They called them, the, you had to register as a, quote, dissenter. I dissent from the state church. I don't want to be an Anglican. I don't want to be a Lutheran or whatever. I'm a pietist. I don't really have a name, but I like to gather together in Bible studies and small groups and leave me alone. We read the Bible and we pray and we and so forth. Um, that's what began to rise up. Now, they had to find places that were friendlier than other places for them to hide out. And there were a number of places in Germany and Holland that had communes, if you want to call them, gatherings of these people that were called pietists or separatists. Um, a lot of them ended up coming to England. For a while, there was more freedom there. Um, but it depended, again, on what king you got and what mood he was in. Um, so some of them shuttled back and forth between Germany and Holland and England, where, wherever it seemed to be a little more favorable. Okay? And usually they would have private, well-to-do um, nobility who had huge estates and had been converted. And so they would protect um, refugees, uh, religious refugees. Um, the French, which stayed uh, Catholic, but the French Protestants, well, I, came, I can't remember why, but anyway, they were called Huguenots. Well, the Huguenots were badly treated by France. I mean, they were hounded, their business taken away, they were, some of them executed. Well, they would flee, many of them fled to Germany, um, and I mentioned, just mentioned last week, a guy that will end up being kind of pivotal in, in U.S. history, um, Count Zinzendorf, okay, and he was in northern Germany and had a huge estate. He took in a lot of Huguenots, a lot of pietists, um, and people that were uh, dissenters, okay, and because it was private land and he was a count or, you know, whatever, he got away with it, okay? So, but as those people either died or the country clamped down even more, they began looking to the new world. This new world that had been Christopher Columbus, you know, 1492 when he sailed the blue. Um, they all knew about this place. And um, there'd been... You know, the, the Catholics, really, Spain and Portugal, had done a lot to begin settling here. You know, they had Florida, Louisiana, they had the South, South America, Central America, which all Catholic. Um, but you have, of course, you have the French, and then you had the English laying claim to a lot of the New World. And so these people who were, had maybe fled from, uh, fled from France, they go to Germany, they're okay there till their benefactor dies or whatever happens, then they got to flee somewhere else, and they go to Holland, and then they get run out of Holland, they go to England. Then England passed uh, laws against like the Puritans, so they got to flee to Scotland, or they got, they, they got tired of it. And so they thought, we got to get out of here. So they start looking here. And that's when you get um, the pilgrims, uh, the Puritans 
Massachusetts colony, um, Georgia, um, <clears throat> and of course it was after a while later, but ended up buying. Jefferson buys the Louisiana Purchase, which everything the French owned, because Napoleon had needed money to in the wars he was in. Um, but at any rate, that leads us then, um, and we'll quit here in a minute, um, Zinzendorf and the group of people that they kind of ended up naming themselves, and they were partly, it was just from where they were at. They were in Moravia, a, 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 dist, a, a region of, you know, there's Bavaria, there's Saxony, there's uh, Moravia and other places in Germany. So they called themselves Moravians, okay? Now the Moravians still exist. They're quite missionary-minded. Um, I don't know much about them except we, I had a professor in college um, whose wife was a Moravian. Um, and they don't really have like, they're not quite like um, Amish or, you know, people like that, Mennonites, but they are clannish. I mean, they, they, they'll live near each other and so forth. Um, but again, they do a lot of mission work. Um, that then, there's an intersection between Zinzendorf and the Moravians and John and Charles Wesley. And that intersection then will shift our attention next week. Are we here next week? It's the week after that that we don't have. Uh, is it the 23rd? Anyway, I think we're off on Wednesday night. It's, I don't know what it is. I think it's, um, is it teacher conference? It's something that we're, we're off. Anyway, I think we're here next week. Um, we'll start looking, we'll shift our attention now back to England and the rise of Methodism in England. Um, I, I'm not exact, I am, I am a Methodist. Um, but I can still be objective, okay? And I am being objective in saying it's pretty hard to measure the extent of the impact of the Methodists. Um, that movement, the Methodist Church, uh, which Wesley never wanted to start a church, he never left the Church of England, um, literally went around the globe. Um, it's in sorry state today, um, but it was a major, major religious revival that literally went around the globe, spawned all kinds of other um, denominations that we'll look at. But that, that we'll shift our attention next week to, um, I'll just say this because I've got five minutes. When Georgia was made a colony named for King George. Governor Oglethorpe was the appointed governor of Georgia. He came over. Um, he's the one that plotted out. Anybody ever been to Savannah? He, he plotted out Savannah 
beautiful city. His, Oglethorpe's personal secretary was Charles Wesley, John Wesley's three years younger brother, okay? Um, he was a ordained priest, Church of England. Um, but at any rate, he came in a dual role, secretary to Oglethorpe, and to attempt to evangelize, establish some mission work with the American Indians in Georgia, okay? Um, he, count, he came over first. Shortly, I don't know, can't remember what shortly means, it, but it wasn't long. Um, John Wesley also came to Georgia as chaplain. So he came in a singular role. He came as chaplain to this new fledgling colony. Um, and they, they were at, um, well, let's see. Now, Williamsburg's in Virginia. Where, what's the name? Now I can't remember the name of it. A, it's a fort. Um, well, anyway, I'll know it by next week. Um, Wesley came over to be the chaplain to this new group of settlers, Oglethorpe and whoever else, and also missionary to the Indians. So um, Wesley was able to do more spiritual work because he didn't have a side job like Charles did, being secretary, executive administrator to Oglethorpe. Wesley visited the Indians, you know, tried to evangelize however he could, also minister to the settlers. Um, this would have been in about th uh, 1736. Um, now, we know this. Wesley knew it later, but he didn't know it at the time. Neither did Charles. Neither Charles or John knew what it meant to be born again. They're priests. They preach, bury, marry, administer the sacraments. But they didn't have any idea what it meant to be saved, have a born-again experience. But they didn't even know that. Um, to make a long story short, I think Charles goes back earlier, and then John stayed. Um, John was pretty rigid, um, very very good administrator, um, very energetic, tremendously gifted. Um, but there's one thing about John Wesley's dumber than a rock when it came to women, okay? So he gets engaged to some woman in Georgia, okay? There's nothing wrong with that. She was well-to-do from one of the leading, you know, rich guys in the new Georgia uh, colony. Well, I can't remember. Well, he caught her. I, I guess she called off the engagement or something um, and didn't tell him or lied to him or did something. He felt like, you know, it wasn't right. So every Sunday, Church of England, you administer communion. It's public. She comes forward to receive communion, and he publicly refuses to offer communion to her. Now, to us, that's like a, a one or a half on a scale of one to 10. In that day, it was 11, okay? It meant, I mean, 
people's minds would have gone everywhere. You know, who knows what she's been doing that he knows, and he's refusing her communion. It was scandalous to ever do that. They had the right to do it. I've done it once, but I did it off to the side um, in a public service. But anyway, a guy that I knew didn't, he didn't have anything to do with God, and I thought, what are you doing? So anyway, um, but Wesley did it publicly. Well, her dad went to the constable, and you could, an, an individual could swear out a warrant. So he swears out a warrant to the constable to arrest John Wesley, the chaplain of the whole colony. Um, and I don't know, he made his defense, can't remember all the little details, but it looked like it might be going south for him because it kind of drug out for some weeks. And so on a nice foggy night, somebody, he got somebody to row him out of the um, Savannah Bay to a ship that was just lying at anchor but heading back to England. And so he gets on it, and he writes in his journal. This is pretty amazing. A, a few days later, still on the voyage home, he writes in his journal, I went to America to save the Indians, but ho oh, who will save me? What brought him to that? Was it was a boatload of Moravians. Okay? It was a commercial ship. And so you had regular sailors, but you also had a whole bunch of Moravians who had been missionaries were returning to England. They get into a horrendous storm. They think their lives are over. And Wesley, he's, and, and they know he's a priest. He's got the collar and the whole business. And so he's leading prayers in the mornings because you had to do all that. Book of Common Prayer, you read in the morning, you read at night, and everybody on board ship gathered. And, you know, so he was ministering to them, yet they get in this horrible um, tempest. And the Moravians sat and sang hymns, hugged their kids, calm. Wesley internally was a wreck. And he thought, we're not going to make it. Well, they made it. The storm went away. And he asked the Moravians, how could you, why were you so calm? We, we, we thought we were going to die. And they said, you know, the, the inner witness. We have peace in our hearts. We, we're in God's hands. We're fine. Here's Wesley, Oxford-educated priest, and he'd been that for now 15 years. He was ordained at 23. At this age, he's about 35. That's 12. So 15. No. Um, yeah, 12 years. And then he writes in his journal. These people, basically, these people got religion. I don't even know. I don't even have it. And so when he got back to England, he hung out with these Moravians and went to a Bible study that they were, there was a guy named Peter Bowler, a Moravian um, preacher, and they had this Bible study in a little place called Aldersgate Street, and he went to that, and they were reading from Luther's commentary on the Book of Romans. And the Book of Romans is where Luther saw in chapter 1, verse 17, the just shall live by faith. And Luther said it's like a light shined on the page on that verse, and I realized 
all I'd been doing was works as a Catholic monk. It's by faith and repentance that I'm saved. Um, so reading that portion, Wesley said the famous words, I felt my heart strangely warmed and I felt that I did trust Christ for forgiveness. And I knew in my heart, he said, that I was reconciled unto God. Okay? There is a 10, 12 foot high marker, metal scroll kind of molded with that whole, I felt my heart strangely warm on the busiest street in London. That little house, of course, is gone. The street's really gone. But the spot, they've marked that. The sidewalk is so crowded, you, you, know, you had to kind of get off to the curb to read it. And I, I, would, I thought, all these people rushing on whatever errand they're on their life, and they don't even know that's there. They walk by it every day and don't even see it. Um, but anyway, that connection with the Moravians and the Wesleys um, led to the Methodist revival. And it, that's what we'll look at next, which then brings us to America, pretty well done with Europe and the spread of um, religion in America, okay? All right, did, yes? What countries in Europe today are still church and state together? Um, <clears throat> are there many? Yeah, I, Stephen's been over there so much, he knew which, but there, there, I think there's a, a majority of them where, where they have, um, it's usually either Lutheran um, in the, you know, Germany, the Scandinavians, and I don't think, I don't know if any of the Catholic churches are actually supported by taxes, you know, like, say, the Scandinavians would Lutheran churches. Um, I do know this, um, after the French Revolution in the 1790s, France abolished, basically, well, they didn't really abolish, but whatever they did, the French government, the government owns all church property in France. They took it all from the church so that if you've paid any attention to the fire and the rebuilding attempt of Notre Dame Cathedral, the government owns that property. The church leases from the government, but they appropriated um, all church property in 1790s. Um, so technically, um, they're still mingled in with it, but um, I, at least I, I know Germany especially is your England, um, Scotland, your, ta your taxes go to pay all the expenses of the churches. So I, I can um, see if I can refine that better, but there's a good number of them that still are. We are so used to separation of church and state, our jaws drop when we think of, but really, 
America was the first experiment with um, freedom of religion and separation of church and state. Now part of that was from some of the refugees from England and Europe who came over here in the 1600s. And because they had come from state churches, that's one of the earliest things they put in the Constitution. We're not doing that anymore. So we're totally different than the vast majority of other countries. I don't know how good of an answer that is, but sort of. <laughs> Anything else before we go? Okay, we got three minutes. No, now it's, now it's down to two um, before the, the little ones are let loose on us. So, Father in heaven, go with us, we pray, as we go. And keep us safe, we ask. And we thank you again for the light that we enjoy of, of the gospel. And we know, Lord, it's a privilege that doesn't always last and many don't have. So we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.